Hi, my name is Tracy G and I'm an inner work coach, NLP trainer and podcaster extraordinaire. Passionate about equality and a world that is more diverse and inclusive, giving each and every one of us the opportunity to be the best version of ourselves. As a biracial woman, I've experienced my fair share of discrimination in the past and come out on top. We all know that discrimination and bias still exists in the world today, and it's not always easy to know what to do about it. This podcast, All One Inclusive, is about celebrating all diversity and being proud of all that you are. I chat with inspiring guests and my friends as we share stories from news sources and listeners from all over the world who have experienced some form of discrimination firsthand. The aim is for us to be able to discuss this issue more openly so it becomes better understood by all and provide tips about what you can do to make a difference. The world may have a lot of catching up to do, but if we can imagine a more equal world, we can create change step by step, ripple by ripple. Hello, happy hump day. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm trying to think of got news to share. I went to a comedy singles. That was fun. Oh, okay. That sounds different. Tell us it about is it. different. It's like stand-up comedy with two comedians, a guy and a girl, and the whole thing is about dating and everybody in the room is single, supposedly. There was a couple in there actually. And it was essentially comedy mixed with games. And it was a little bit like Blind Date. Remember that show? With Scylla Black. Scylla Black. So you had contestants and you had a person looking for a date and the person was either blindfolded no they were always blindfolded but either they would pick based on the answers you know you'd ask you know how would you describe yourself if you were a food or something okay what about equally what about corny lines yeah Yeah. corny questions corny you know comebacks like there was this oh I won't even tell you because it a lot of it was very uh, crude and foul if you like so crude crude is not my kind of humor uh, innuendo I think is funny yes but that's just my personal humor innuendo that to me is funny crudeness is just not funny to me so a bit of both uh, but I had a good time because I, I just found it a really funny fun experience yeah it sounds like it especially if you described it as a bit of like Cilla Black's blind day yeah. I have to ask do they have a grail with that quick reminder Oh, the comedians kind of just set up bits of quick reminders. That's quite funny. And you had to put fill in these cards where you wrote down your best or worst date, best or worst child blinds, so that they would read them out like between games. And then you had the option to steal contestants. So when I say steal contestants, steal the place of a contestant. So okay. if you like the guy or the girl, uh-huh. you wanted to be a contestant, you could go and pull one off the stage if you have one of these cards under your seat. Right, so swap places with one of the contestants. I see. And so, did you partake in this? I volunteered. That's like, why not? Why not? But I got booted off the stage by somebody who wanted the seat. Oh no! But the question is, were there any guys there that you felt like you wanted to date? So there wasn't, unfortunately. No, oh. no, not really. Oh, okay. That's a little bit of a doubt. Yeah, I think so it was a little bit young. As well. I mean, there were probably people maybe old. Yeah, there was. 
guys in the right age range, but not many. Do you think that the format of this dating style is probably more suitable for, not suitable, but probably more um, attractive to a younger demographic? No, because I was there on my own. There was a few people, girls on their own. A guy's, I met a guy, the first person I met, there was a guy who was there on his own. So a lot of people went on their own and there was a lady that was in her 50s. Um, For her, she felt it more, but it was quite young. But I feel it could work for any demographic. I think, you know, the answers would be different. But I think it would work for any demographic. You just have to have the people interested in going. Yeah. You've got all your people that divorced and separated. Mm -hmm. There's a big group of people there. Yeah, I think it's a great style or for a format of a way to approach dating to really target like-minded individuals. So for me, what this sounds like is that um, if an individual has a sense of humor as high on their not prior on high on their list in terms of attractiveness, then it seems obvious that a, a comedy style dating event would be a forum where you could obviously there's more chance of meeting. Another person who's obviously um, valuing comedy and uh, a sense of humour in a partner. Perhaps, perhaps. I also think there was a bit of a way from motivation for some of the people there. So, you know, what you're talking about is towards motivation, towards that type of setup, like the comedy side. But for some people, it was, I'm sick of online dating and there's nothing else to do. So oh. I'm going to go to this. So I think it just depends... It might be a bit of both. I think not necessarily everybody there was a massive comedy buff. I just feel like it was a different experience, another way to meet people. And I think it's a really good idea because it is an experience. And they also gave you uh, like cards and you write your name and number on. And if you saw anyone you like, you could just hand them the card, you know, with at least the confidence that everybody's there to potentially meet someone and they're single. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's such a good idea. Maybe I should just carry these cards around in the street. <laughs> it would be so much easier, wouldn't it? Where, well, you know, you say that, but let's rewind back about 20 years ago, you know, before iPhones, before mobile phones. Um, I know I'm showing my age here, but um, I'm owning that. Um, I remember a time when if you liked someone, you would write your number down on a piece of paper and simply hand it to them. You know, and that's basic. And then you'd have to, if somebody gave you their number, you'd be revising it in your head and then waiting by the phone at home, uh, religiously sitting there, waiting for the phone to ring. Um, But that's basically, that's how it used to be about 20 years ago, you know. So, um, you know, I mean, I wish that that would come back around again, you know. Well, I guess it could. I mean, nothing to stop you doing it. And I mean, if you're doing it with people who are a close age to you, then it's not going to be such a, it'll only be a surprise in the sense that nobody does that anymore. But it's not like a surprise that they don't know that's a thing that people used to do. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the same in in the workplace. You know, I remember a time when you'd have business cards and you'd go to a meeting or you'd meet somebody in the street in a coffee and then realize that you were very in the same industry and you basically hand them your business card. Mm. And, you know, that's also been lost. So, mm. Well, it kind of, it's still going, trust me. I was going to these networking groups and I keep getting handed business cards. Okay. I tend to not do that anymore because you can have like a QR code and that's it. Yeah, it's- you can do all that kind of thing. But older schools still do the whole yeah. business card thing um, for sure. But yeah, it's quite And I suppose it's better for the planet. Yeah, as well, the paper. And, yeah, for that's sure. It. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that was my thing last week. What about you? What have you been up to? 
Well, I have to say... Besides I, reading a million books. Yeah, besides <laughs> reading a million books, uh, well, I have to say, I mean, the uh, comedy format, dating format, never have I ever done that. So, and the, the reason why I say that format is because I've just binge-watched Never Have I Ever Series 4. <laughs> And I have to say, I'm proudly saying it because I absolutely loved this one. I absolutely loved series four. Hands down, it was the wittiest and funniest of all the series. And I love the fact that, and I'm not going to do any spoiler alerts, but I love the fact that in the last episode, virtually all of it, it was all played out by an actress who wore a sari throughout the whole episode. And I absolutely loved that. Oh, okay. Well, I started watching it last night. I've been waiting for it to come out because I love that show as well. And I nearly, I nearly got caught into, I nearly got pulled in. I did watch one more than I needed to really <laughs> to get, you know, decent sleep there. So I nearly did. I probably watched some more tonight or maybe not because I'm going out, but I'll be watching it. I bet you any money I finished it by the end of the weekend. <laughs> I probably will. I have to say, the reason why I loved it was because obviously there were moments where there was lots of LOL moments for me in series four. Um, but the way it was written and um, it was the humour of it, it was great. And also, there's some teary moments too. Well, the actors are really good, aren't they? They are, yeah. And I think it transports you back. And for me, it transported me back to a seven, 16, 17-year-old version of myself where yeah. I was actually, where it actually is um, is put together all of what you were thinking and what you were feeling into this series. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's very nostalgic too. Yeah, it does really, yeah, you can. I can totally see situations that played out for me in high school or other friends even in high school. And yeah, the insecurities and the misunderstandings. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, and I think the, the reason why it really resonates is because the series, the main character is an Indian character. And it's, I mean, growing up, I never had, you know, I used to watch um, Beverly Hills 90210, you know, you watch Grange Hill. You know, there weren't any Indian characters in those and there weren't any main characters. And mm. so I think this is why I'm resonating with it all too. Yeah, yeah. I know. I think there was, I'm going to say this, I don't like to say it, but in Grain Chill, I think there was a token Indian and a token black person. There's, yeah, I think during that time, it was 1980s, wasn't it? Yeah, let's get a token um, black person, token Indian person. It's, what, it's like what Rennie, our podcast um, guest last week, was saying. Mm, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. You know, the agency description of who they represent, they have one black person because and I think that's the reason why I really enjoyed Never Have I Ever was, was because, um, and again, no spoiler alerts, but that last, the very last episode, um, it wasn't until I was getting to the end of it when I realised, hold on, this main character, she's been wearing a sari this whole episode, the whole final episode, she's been wearing a sari. Mm. And that just brought such a smile to my face. It, I felt it was such a warming thing to see. Mm. So, and um, yeah, I applaud the producers and the writers for doing that. Oh, okay. All right. We've got a lot to cover today. So, you know, we share stories on this podcast about celebrating achievements, especially of those of underrepresented minority groups, um, showing representation in places where is not the norm and talking about uh, policy and news and behavior that's supporting or against diversity or even discriminatory. 
And I was really saddened to hear the news lately um, about what's happening in Florida and the bills being passed in Florida. And even recently, I mean, by the time this podcast episode goes out, it'll be maybe even a month since this has happened. But, you know, the governor in Florida is signing bills banning children from undergoing transgender medical treatments, but not just children. It affects adults as well, or young adults. Um, going to drag shows and restricting pronoun use in classrooms. So it's putting out a lot of legislation that's regulating basically the LGBTQ community or LGBT community. And he might be declaring his candidacy for the presidency mm -hmm. as well. I'm just like, what is going on? And they're also banning books in Florida. Uh, banning books that are miss. LGBT, but not on that premise, because I don't think they could get away with that. But they're kind of inciting that it's sexually explicit or, I don't know, violence or whatever. They're kind of using those kind of rationales to ban certain books. And apparently, and this is not in this article, um, but I heard somebody was telling me that, you know, because of how they've got away with doing that, it's meant that they've had to ban things like that. This is out of school libraries as well. They've okay. had to ban things like the Bible because it also meets the criteria that they've set to justify banning these books, um, which I found quite amusing because it's very hypocritical. So, I mean, their justification is that they're protecting children's innocence. And they're saying that if they allow children into adult life performances, such as drag shows, so that they're stripping businesses of their licenses. So, yeah, there's just a lot going on in uh, Florida. I'm really surprised about the book side of things, about like banning religious texts like the Bible and probably obviously including a, of a religious texts and also books around LGBTQI content um, because it's deemed to be what they call damaging. Is that what the... Yeah, and I mean, this is what this, this governor is called, Mr. De has waded into America's culture wars, signing bills banning teaching on gender identity in public schools, restricting abortion access, protecting gun rights, and railing against woke indoctrination right okay it's interesting because you know um, i mean this is this isn't going to go away and yeah. um, you know we are who we are and uh, a lot of people turn to uh, books for example uh, and also find support in their religious communities you know around a lot of issues and you know preventing books and uh, especially on religious texts and also on the lgbtqi content that's not going to resolve a situation that's not going to stop a situation from occurring no and i mean you know this whole banning the medical treatments the medical association endorses a number of they're the experts you know they're endorsing treatments even saying that it's appropriate, even saying it's life-saving for some people, especially those diagnosed with gender dysphoria, which is, you know, the, the belief or feeling that you're not the gender you are of birth. And I just think it's just causing more harm than good. It's just really scary to hear that, yeah, that this person's in power and they're doing this.
So it yeah, the things- scary. It's, it is scary to hear. I suppose it's a reflection on how much um, support that this perspective has. That as well. Yeah, of course. And it's exposing that, you know. So yeah. it's, it's scary. I can understand what you're saying, Tracy. No, it's, uh, it's surprising and also scary to see how it's gaining momentum. Mm. We'll see, because he's supposed to be running, essentially running in 2024. Mm-hmm. But I think, I don't know if he can, if Trump's running again. It's, yeah, scary. Yeah, and we've, so, yet, yeah. we've yet to see if he's able to run again. Well, yeah, if he's not, well, this guy definitely will be. I just think, yeah, the world's going backwards. It's down to the American public to vote. It really is down to the American public to vote. Yeah, it is, I guess. And then I think it's more than that. It's down to the American public to really inform yourself on these issues and the impact it has on communities. But if they're not given access to the literature, which allows one to inform themselves, mm-hmm. exactly. what kind of outcome is, can be expected? Exactly. I mean, and it's always interesting to me, the people that um, want, have so passionately want to ban these things or censor these things are people that don't have or that don't necessarily have to live with that problem or anybody close to them doesn't necessarily have to live with that backlash or that prejudice or that um, lack of support. I know it's not always the case, but it is often the case. Basically, it doesn't affect them. Why are they so against it? It doesn't actually affect them. And and you might say, well, it affects other people and they care about other people, but it's against the people that they're claiming to try and protect. And that's the difference. It's going against their wishes and their needs. And Anyway. That's a good point you make. Very good point you make, Tracy. Yeah. So what do you have for us? Um, So an article that came up is from The Guardian. Mm. And um, I think The Guardian uh, wrote an article about how retailers, and this is in England, uh, have been trying to um, put in uh, methods to stop shoplifting. And in their race section of The Guardian, um, they've now published, The Guardian now published an article, which is from a reader who's basically said that uh, it's her skin colour that makes her a target in shops. So I'm just going to um, read the, the actual headline is my skin color makes me a target in shops. The article says, I understand the challenges that retail stores face, and I don't dispute the need for vigilance. Still, my experience as a minority ethnic customer have highlighted a problem that isn't getting enough attention. In many shops, from convenience stores and supermarkets to clothing retailers, I've noticed that I get followed by staff members most of the time. Initially, I dismissed these occurrences as coincidences. Over time, however, the frequency, patterns and consistency of these instances left little room for doubt. I am being racially profiled. This phenomenon is largely unrecognisable to my white friends and family, which only intensifies the sting of its implications. Their difficulty comprehending my experience points to a pervasive, tacit bias, frequently unnoticed by those it doesn't directly affect. This is an experiential manifestation of what has been colloquially termed shopping while black. Although I am brown-skinned, the discrimination is rooted in the same racial bias. 
that stores need to tackle shoplifting is clear, but it seems their efforts often lead to racial profiling, which is incredibly disheartening. I've tried discussing this with customer service teams for some well-known supermarket and clothing chains, but nothing has changed. Thankfully, I'm doing well for myself and would never consider stealing. So, yeah, this is Mm. an interesting article. So it actually goes on to say, this is a plea to retail establishments to acknowledge their systemic racial bias in their security measures, if present, and work towards eradicating it. Striking a balance between protecting profits and respecting the dignity of all customers, irrespective of their racial or ethnic backgrounds, is paramount. The cost of overlooking this balance is unacceptably high, as evidenced by my experience. Yeah, and it happens a lot. I mean, have I personally experienced it? I'll honestly say I have no recollection. I can't say I've noticed that personally. However, I do... No, it happens. I have family members that describe it. I have a friend here who lives in Melbourne, or a friend of a friend, really, who's described it to me. She's from the UK. Where going into the shop, and it's that, you know, you could say, oh, it's in their head, because nobody's saying anything to them, but they're looking at them, and they're, you know, their eyes are following them around the shop, and the energy is not a positive one. Do you know what I mean? You can sense energy. Yeah, totally sense energy. You know, when people go, you know, walk in a room and you could cut the tension with a knife. You can feel mm-hmm. energy. That's energy. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, that's saying you can cut the atmosphere with a knife. That's energy. That's energy. Exactly. So you can feel the energy when somebody's looking at you in an untrusting way, like, and, you know, I make, and now I'm making things up, like you're a criminal, like uh, you're a bad person, like they should be afraid of you or something like that. So that's a really terrible thing. And you go, well, how is it a problem? Well, not only is it a problem for the person that it's happening to, because it makes the experience uncomfortable. It makes them maybe not want to buy things. It makes it dehumanizing. It's disempowering. But also it's a problem because when it becomes so pervasive, what we see is people getting killed by police. Mm. You know, people getting stopped unnecessarily uh, by law enforcement. In different countries under suspicions and actually losing their lives and then in this country it tends to be a problem that we have with indigenous population here you know you see higher incarceration rates as well so that's why it's a huge huge problem and it just becomes so pervasive and the societies and people don't even realize it but there's plenty of research it's a thing now I mean, how would you be able to, you know, research into this? I mean, I know, you know, we're talking about experiences and, uh, and I know that, I mean, thinking about it, you know, I can't think of a time when I've experienced this type of um, racial profiling. However, I don't know whether or not it's hidden by something else. So for example, I've been in situations more than one time where I've picked, when I've been a customer, I've walked into a retail establishment, I've picked up an item and I've asked about the product color and the answer is about the price. And so I've stepped away thinking, oh, I didn't ask about how much it was. I asked whether or not it was available in a different color. Um, And I've just walked away thinking, not in terms of if it's racial profiling or whether or not that same question would be asked if I wasn't brown skinned, mm. um, I've walked away just thinking 
you know, it's more of a, oh, can you afford this particular product? But, you know, whether or not that, that retailer would ask the same question, would respond or would respond to somebody else who was Caucasian, for example, would mm. that happen? I don't know. You know, it'd be an interesting experiment to well, see I think- whether or not, you know, if they could put a hidden camera and, uh, and compare the response of someone who's Caucasian versus someone who's brown skinned to see what kind of response that they'd get. That would be interesting. That's probably, I wouldn't be surprised if it's been done. And I mean, you know, so looking at some of the statistics that are, you know, evidence-based and out there, for example, you compare apples with apples. So it's something like speeding. You know, apparently uh, there was a, you know, a review of data, and I guess it was a bit of an experiment around, you know, unfair policing, the disproportionate amount of stops of people racially motivated, for example. So, you know, um, white people speeding or an ethnic person speeding demonstrated that for speeding black drivers were 4.8 times more likely to be stopped than a speeding white driver. So you can't say that's not racially profiling. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting also about the article about uh, the article is saying about that retailers need to be made aware of this and you know, it'd be great if they put things into action. So, I mean, I know it's been a long time since I worked in retail, um, but I know that uh, there are training sessions that happen in retail environments. Hmm. It would be really great. It'd be really interesting to see this being introduced now. Yeah, I mean, it's like, what are you actually looking for? If you, you know, say you get, say shoplifting is a problem in your store. I think the problem is, you know, even like now, you know, essentially in this, the terrible problem we're having financially across the world, people are struggling, cost of living. People may be in positions where they feel that's their, their only option and it might actually be their only option still. And it's not just going to be black people. It's pretty mm-hmm. much affecting so many people. Um, so I guess it's like if you're going to be training and if you really have a problem with shoplifting, then you need to put things in place that uh, are not targeting minorities. You're right. Yeah, but it was also just having the conversation, opening up the conversation. I know it can be probably, I can imagine it would probably be slightly uncomfortable about talking about race when it comes mm. to security measures and shoplifting. But if the conversation is opened up and if it's held in a certain way, then I think just by putting it out there and opening up a conversation, putting awareness on it. Can- yeah, you know, I think it needs to trait like a, a very specialized training. Um, for sure I mean that comedian Mo Gilligan has a joke about it have you ever seen that joke <laughs> I've seen Mo Gilligan's yeah. so I'm trying well, to think I think he used so to is work, it spraying to, is it Joe Malone he, or something yeah he used to work in Joe Malone in yeah. Westfield and the and he's like the brother comes in and you're like you know, stealing it yeah yeah so there's a joke and it's, that's, I, know, it's funny. It. I mean he's sending it up you know Mo, Mo Milligan is, is sending this particular topic up you know, he's taking this topic about, you know, how how people of colour are being associated with shoplifting. Mm-hmm. And he just turned a joke around as in like, hey, come on, let's not feed into this. So, yeah, he's obviously tackled this subject um, and obviously put his own comedy spin on it, as he always does. And um, yeah, and it, it was very funny. Mm. Yeah, but exa- it's exactly that. Let's take that and then, you know, put that into training sessions. Open up a conversation, make it normalize 
the fact that this is happening. Um, yeah, it happens. And this is what it, but I think they need to be told what it looks like. For example, to me, I would say your experience there is racially profiling. And you asking if they have this in other colors and them telling you how much it costs. Um, really? I probably think that. It depends, you know, I wasn't there. So it's more than just what the words they use. It's how they say it. It's the energy as well. But at the um, same time, I think also, like, like, I'm just, when I was saying it out loud, it, you know, it reminded me of the Pretty Woman, the film, the film Pretty Woman. And, you know, they basically, and in Pretty Woman, you know, she's a Caucasian uh, uh, female. Mm. And so, you know, and this happens to her. Mm. Yeah, that's another prejudice. She didn't look the part, did she? Mm. So I'm, it's, the prejudice has been around as, you know, age old, but it's always different, it's different groups of people. And the problem is it's for a long time in just high street, just in grocery shopping, these are not like prestigious shops. Yeah. You know, you're being um, experienced prejudice on a regular occasion. It's not great. I mean, even Oprah got refused service. That's right. In, yeah. In her one mess. of the, yeah. Mess, yeah. Yeah. She wasn't able to buy her handbag from her mess. Yeah. So she, they wouldn't serve her. And um, I can't think of any other reason than the fact that she was black. Yeah. Yeah. So, and like she's one of the wealthiest women in the world. Yeah. I couldn't think the shop person had no idea who she was. But I think that's exactly what happened. They didn't, but regardless, whether or not she was Oprah or whether or not she exactly. was Oprah, let the woman buy the handbag. Yeah. <laughs> let the woman have the handbag. Exactly. Exactly. It's a like... Obviously, that bias is in like, okay, well, she may not be able to afford it. And it goes back to that pretty woman scenario about it's what you look like and if we're going to be able to sell it to you. So. Well, I don't know if it, it could be, you don't, but it's also that we don't want you representing our mm. brand. Yeah. It could be that That's side it. of it. I don't really know which one. Could be both. I don't know. Yeah. So who mm. knows? Um, but yeah, racial profiling is the thing. Um, and actually, when we also had on, just touch on this, we had my uh, mentor on here, Andrew Law, and he talked about, he's Asian, Malaysian background. And he talked about when he, what it was like when he first moved here. And he actually got placed in a, a university in like a rural town, rural Australia. So my preconceptions about rural Australia is they're less, they're less exposed to difference. And so their perspectives are a lot narrower. Let's just put it that way. Mm -hmm. And he described experiences where potentially he was being racially profiled. But he described how he handled that. And I just thought it took such grace the way he handled it. And he described a scenario where he'd go into a shop and, you know, getting looked at and he'd be, be following him, you know. And he would go straight up to the person and go, hi, how are you? I uh, really like your shop or whatever you're selling. And start a conversation. And, you know, then it would become a conversation asking, you know, what are you doing or where are you from? And he'd start to, and he saw that approach completely diffuse the situation and became a positive thing. And then the next time he walked in that shop, he was greeted warmly. So that I thought was a fantastic uh, approach. Not necessarily would work every time, mm -hmm. but I guess what people see when you, if they are actually profiling you, is this fear there. And, you know, the simplest way I can describe what it did 
is he diffused the fear with love? Mm. That's the simplest way I can describe how his approach works. So it's not judging the person. It's not blaming. It's not getting angry. It's just going in and going, starting a conversation. Hey, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And actually, if somebody was following me around the shop, I would start talking to them. But now, like, hey, do we know each other? Follow me around the shop. <laughs> you before? Do I know you from somewhere? Yeah. yeah. That's right. Oh, I yes, that's right. You were in the previous shop that I was in. That's right. <laughs> oh, do, you, do you like me? You do, don't you? Um, I've always wanted a stalker. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I got to move on to the next story because I just thought this is so cool. I think we kind of talked about this before. So this story is from the news source, Positive News. And I discovered this news source when I was first started this podcast because I wanted to find positive news because a lot of news is not positive. And so this is quite great, but sad at the same time. So in positive news, and the headline is the taboo around medicine's most ignored organ is finally being broken. So what do you think the world's most ignored organ is? Well, I know you know the answer. Yes. But if you didn't know the answer, what would you think? Would you think of? Oh, gosh. Um, I'd be thinking of something. Yeah, I don't know whether I would be first thing to come to mind, but uh, maybe I would. It wouldn't be the first thing that comes to mind because I hadn't even considered it as an organ, firstly. So for me, it wouldn't have been the first thing. So for centuries, the clitoris has been ignored by medicine, shrouded in shame and secrecy. Until recently, most up-to-date information on how many nerve endings it contains came from a 1976 study of cows. Oh, I love this. Cows. We're talking about the C word here, aren't we? (laughs) Now, thanks to the work of a few committed doctors and activists, it's finally being brought out of the shadows. And this writer shares how in their early 30s, that was when they learned the difference between a vulva and a vagina. Do you know the difference between a vulva and a vagina? Hold on, I'm just trying to figure out. Hold on. This experiment was done on cows. We're going back to that, yeah. Yeah. Not now. It's come from that research, but back then it was in the 70s. Okay. Okay. But now my question is, do you know the difference between a vulva and a vagina? The vulva is a, it's a different, it's a part of the vagina. Right. Okay. So this is, this person say in their thirties, that's when they learned that. Um, They learned about the actual anatomy of the clitoris and they've given birth three times and she did biology. And so she's interested in health and medicine. And yet when she took a proper look, um, she was surprised. And then 2022 study, so this is just last year, yeah. gynecologist at the University of Manchester, yay Manchester, because I went to uni there, um, less than 10% of women could accurately label female genitalia. That's a bit scary, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I actually, because it reminds me of, um, like when you mentioned about this, uh, she was studying biology, this woman. So I remember in my biology lessons, I don't remember being given a diagram and being able to label parts of the female anatomy or even a male anatomy. I can't remember it, but I remember there was an episode on the sex education um, Netflix series where that was, that was the assignment. Yeah. It's funny. And uh, I do remember that was high school. I went to a Catholic school 
but it was part of the sex ed part of science and it wasn't a detailed it was the vagina and uterus kind of thing more than the rest of it yeah and this yeah and the penis so it sounds more like it was for reproductive it was more reproductive kind of description and so left a lot out let's just put it like that left a lot out I don't even think the clitoris was in there I don't even think I knew what that was and it's interesting because you know you mentioned about biology and um, sex education classes and so ideally in the biology class it would be focusing on reproduction organs well no I think the anatomy of the whole thing yeah but however in a sex education class that's where the emphasis would be on the actual sexual organs like clitoris for example Whereas in a biology class, the emphasis ideally would be on reproductive um, organs. I, know, I don't I, think so. Traditionally. I just think, traditionally. I just, I just think biology should be focused on biology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree, but I'm just I'm saying that. Yeah. Yeah. In traditional style, like I remember when I was at school, there were sex education classes and there were biology classes. And I don't remember having to label, having diagrams with male and female genitalia and being able to label it at all. Maybe it's my memory that's not serving me. Maybe I skipped the class. I doubt it. But yeah, I can't remember that. And so I'm just thinking if I was going, if I was recalling back my education days, you know, it'd be great to say I learned about sexual organs in my sex education class and the biology class was focused more so on the reproductive organs. Mm. Possibly. And so like 10% of women. So this is a 2022 study. 2022. Okay, let's see the stats. Well, it just says less than 10% of women could accurately label female genitalia. And the clitoris is even more taboo than the vagina and arguably the most neglected human organ by medicine. It is still inadequately depicted in most medical textbooks and barely touched upon in medical training. And this is the problem. Women have been injured by this lack of knowledge. And it's true because if you think about childbirth, a lot of stuff can happen down there mm-hmm. and a lot of damage can be caused. And are they going to know how to fix that if they don't know about the full biology of it? That's just one, one reason, one medical reason. Um, this is a serious problem. Women have been injured by this lack of knowledge through botched reconstruction surgeries, anti-incontinence procedures. So these are examples. Obsteric tears and repairs. So this again, childbirth. Yeah. And vulvectomy. And that's hopefully going to start to change. Now, this is so sad. This is what's sad. Only in 2022, they got the most up-to-date research, but bothered to find it. First things first, let's define our terms. Clitoris is from the Greek kletoris, which means little hill. Though it's more like a mountain range than a hill. (laughs) And way more extensive than most people realise. 90% of the organ is internal. It looks a little like a wishbone with two bulbs attached. The external tip is the glands. This is what most people think of as the clitoris. The main nerve in the clitoris, like in the penis, is the dorsal nerve, which runs through the clitoral body and makes the organ particularly sensitive. There is also the clitoral hood, the clitoral bulbs, and the crura, the longest leg part that can extend when erect, up to nine centimetres into the pelvis. I just feel like this is your internal penis. Yes, exactly, that's right. This is the holy grail. Yeah, the holy grail. It's your internal penis. So it's much bigger and more complex than most people realise. 
which has implications not just in the bedroom and the classroom, but on the operating table. Now, a number of people from across different fields of expertise are leading the way and giving the clitoris the attention it deserves through fighting misinformation, conducting cutting edge scientific research and shifting cultural norms around sexual health. So it means surgeons can spare crucial nerves during gender reassignments or clitoral reconstruction for women who have undergone FGM. Do you know what FGM is? Yeah. Enables phenol genital mutilation. Yeah. Enables us to improve anatomy textbooks and better understand the mechanisms behind female orgasm and gives medicine a chance to finally give adequate care to half the world's population. FGM has impacted or affects a lot of the African population, well, uh, not a lot, but there's a considerable amount of the African population that is impacted by FGM. And mm. I think, and I haven't read around this, but I think it, what I understand, it may be, behind it may be cultural practices. Yeah, it's a cultural practice. And so, yeah, that's what I know about FGM yeah. is there are cultural practices or tr traditions which are still being practiced in Africa mm. through FGM. Yes, yeah, a very and disturbing and traumatic cultural yes. practice. And this is why when people justify behaviours or beliefs by saying it's part of our culture, I don't take that at face value. I was like, well... I don't care it's part of your culture how's it impacting people's lives and that's what's coming to the surface that's what's been coming to the surface in the last years so it goes on to talk about the history of the organ in terms of what it's been called how it's been named and then but mostly taboo let's be honest because I never really knew what a the word clitoris until I was a lot older. In 1947, the clitoris was removed from the 25th edition of Gray's Anatomy, the doctor's Bible, right? Mm. By the editor. Um, and then Sigmund Freud relegated the clitoris to the lunatic asylum of sexuality. And clitoral orgasms were infantile and evidence of mental illness. This is what um, Sigmund Freud wrote. That's hilarious. Good old Freud. Yeah. Whilst vaginal ones were mature and healthy. And I remember me, like, and this is like in the 20s, of the 21st century, a guy saying something about, I can't remember, like, you could only orgasm through penetration. There's something, there's something about it, his perception of that. Or that was, oh, I can't remember. I can't remember. It was so stupid. It was but kind it's, of this it's an interesting one because, you know, you mentioned about that. Um, 10%, only 10% of women um, would be able to identify where their clitoris is. Well, not where the clitoris well, is, sorry, where correctly. The anatomy. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, I know, you know, out there, there's, when it comes to, um, you know, women talking about um, their sexual experiences, you know, there's this common thing about, oh, he doesn't even know where he is, where I, you know, they're obviously referring to the clitoris. And so, but at the same time, there's, you know, if women don't know, where their clitoris is. How can you expect your man to know where the clitoris is? Well, this is the thing. Who teaches the men? But to be fair, who teaches the men and who teaches women should be school. You know, it shouldn't... It, shouldn't. it goes back to the sex education classes. You it know. does, doesn't uh, it? Yeah, and then and the medical terms. It's not even in a medical textbook at one point. Yeah, but, um, but to say that we are, Tracy, you know, we're saying, yeah, you know, it'd be great if sex education classes could take this on. But just imagine if they did, what kind of backlash... 
would that have with parents you know well the ultimate conservative yeah yeah so we've also been talking about you know how there's backlash around from parents around what their kids are read and who it's read by but can you imagine if this was being taught in sex education classes what kind of backlash parents would have well I think to be honest it might actually be taught and I reckon some parents would have problems with it and may have the option to have their child opt out I think that's probably an option um I don't know exactly I'd have to ask some teachers that I know and it goes on to talk about how things change in the 20th century uh, Australian urologist Helen O'Connell so big up to Australian neurologist and I Helen. Just say, well neurologist that's my you're, you're talking my language no, urologist neurologist right no you 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 oh urologist yeah oh, urologist okay. yeah I see so big up for Helen O'Connell urologist not neurologist um, outraged by the absence of the clitoris in textbooks she decided to tackle the problem in 2005 and it just scares me how recent this is she used MRI to create accurate images of the organ and confirm the illustrations that Cobalt made. She was surprised by how large the nerves were, more than two millimeters in width, not a thread, more like the wire in a coat hanger. She also published a page paper which found that contrary to popular belief, the G-spot did not exist as a discrete anatomical construct and made it clear that the clitoris was the focus of orgasm for most women and people should know where to find it. And the fact that your clitoris is so deep inside, that's probably what people think is a G-spot. Yeah, I think a a G-spot is probably, I don't know how that was constructed, but uh, obviously it took off with lots of rap stars. Yeah, and the fact is it's probably the internal part of your clitoris. But anyway, we're educating people, we're educating ourselves (laughs) here because I wouldn't know any of this. And it wasn't until 2022, however, that the nerves in the clitoris were quantified. Previously, the off-site claim that it has 8,000 nerve endings came from a 1976 study of cows. Blair Peters, self-styled as the queer surgeon with he-they pronouns, is a gender-reforming surgeon with extensive training in nerve surgery. He performs phalloplasty, which is the creation of the penis for mostly transmasculine individuals, but also for cisgender people with trauma or conditions such as cancer. His passion is genital sensation and elevating the importance of sexual health. When he first began working in the field of major genital reconstruction, he was surprised doctors weren't talking to people about sexual function. So that motivated him to delve deeper into what they can do. So surprise, the 8,000 nerves figure was inaccurate inaccurate in a study published last October 2022 that created headlines around the world. Peters revealed that the number of nerves was in fact more than 10,000 and the implications were huge. And it's really important illuminating misinformation around this area. But there was another bit I wanted to read. Why is so neglected? That was what I wanted to read. Why does he think the clitoris has been so neglected until now? And he says a lot of it comes down to suppression of sexuality for anyone who isn't a straight man, he says. The way we view sex has been penile penetration only. And that doesn't capture the sexual experience for so many of us. For people with problems other than medical procedures, Peter says, there is really not many options out there, nor is there very much literature. Jessica Pinn, a self-styled, self-styled as MedClit, 
is a clitoral activist with a huge online following. I'm going to follow her. Her advocacy work as a result of her own experience of the devastating effects of medical neglect. She was harmed during surgery. Her clitoral hood was cut and sensation lost during a labiaplasty. And she decided to campaign for better medical education and vulvar anatomy. So that's really wonderful. And she's been advocating for the clitoris to be returned to textbooks. And she's got nine major medical textbooks changed. Yeah, yeah it's pretty mm-hmm. cool. Um, and says her mission's not nearly finished. She's working to get anatomy of the clitoris covered in the same depth as other organs. She found that there were 57 times as many words about the penis compared with the clitoris in medical textbooks. And she wanted to establish anatomical basis for female sexual medicine and ensure all doctors considered qualified to operate on vulvas are taught clitoral anatomy. Yeah, I think what what Mr. Saying is that he's really highlighting that again. It's bringing out some um, of this topic into a uh, wider forum and bringing it out of the shadows, so that if there are any individuals who are going, or if any individual finds himself going through the likelihood that there may be some surgery which includes the or in and around the female genitalia start having conversations with the doctor, have that conversation with the doctor, with the surgeon about, you know, about this, about how it's going to impact the clitoris. Because I don't think, I've never heard of this clitoris being a consideration when it comes to childbirth Mm. um, surgeries. No, it's an interesting topic and it it should be brought out out of the shadows. It absolutely should. But, you know, you might have a surgeon that doesn't, is not educated, isn't trained. And she says she came across ideological brick walls in her work. Medical professionals who say it's not important, for example. It's a really big problem that people say the clitoris is just for pleasure. Because what happens is that doctors say we're not focused on pleasure, we're focused on reproduction. And there was a, in 2019, the British scientist Roy Levin published a review study which argued that the clitoris has a key function in reproduction as well as pleasure. He analysed 15 studies published in 1966, 2017, which showed that clitoral stimulation enhances blood flow, increases lubrication and tenting, all of which has a positive effect on the activation of sperm. So there is a potential reproductive cost as well. So that's pretty much what I wanted to say, because this whole argument that, well, that's the reason why it's been neglected, because they're arguing that it was pleasure, pleasure, not reproduction, and it wasn't clinically important to have to think about it because sexual function wasn't a priority however for men there seems to be a lot more study oh, of that organ absolutely there's, there's complete double standards there yeah so so you'll see more activists readdressing the wrongs and misinformation around this neglected organ organ championed by a very few passionate individuals artists as well leading the way celebrating the clitoris through street art and sculptures such as the Glitterous, an enormous golden sequin model designed by Sydney-based artist Ali Sebastian Wolf. And designers are celebrating the accurate anatomy through necklaces, lights, dresses, t-shirts, mugs, postcards, and the vagina museums sell out clitorally adorable earrings. Well, that's interesting. I know that there's a lingerie shop in um, a boutique 
in London and or in England, should I say, because they have stores all over England, I'm sure, called Coco de Mer. And Coco de Mer, the reason, one of the reasons why they selected that name as their shop was because is because Coco de Mer is a plant and its seed, when you look at a picture, is actually looks very similar to a vagina. Oh, interesting. So, um, and that's why it's called Coco de Mer shop. And so it's, uh, it's, it sells very provocative lingerie. And I thought that was it. It's, we've obviously selected that word really well, really well. Coco. I'm going to end on this five things you didn't know about the clitoris. Hit us with it. Okay. So the clitoris has more than double the number of nerves in the penis. All female mammals have clitorises. The largest belongs to the blue whale and can be up to three feet long. Clitorises get erections. They are comprised of erectile tissue and become bigger, harder, and engorged when aroused, just like the penis. The clitoris continues growing through life. Oh, it continues to grow. It could be two and a half times bigger in your 90s than it is than it is than it was in your teens. There you go. That's an ad for old age, if ever I heard it. They should put that on the cover of a card. Definitely. The name for the flower Asian pigeon wings is Clitoria Ternatia, and it looks like a clitoris. That was it. That was so interesting. And great. Yeah, and it'll it'll be interesting to see if we can uncover, if there are stories, more stories that come out about this, the big C in our podcast so over the coming months let's see if there are any stories that come out around this yeah maybe we'll see i think we've just got time quickly very quickly what would you do right so we have to make it really quick but i had a what would you do moment the other day so we've got a long weekend coming up here in australia and um I was on a walk with a friend, sorry, with a with a work colleague. I was out with a work colleague. I don't really know her about that well. And she asked me what I was doing for a long weekend. And I let her know that I didn't have anything planned, but there is a um, an exhibition that is happening on the weekend, which one of our other work colleagues has been putting together. And it's based around um, racism in Australia. And um, so I said I'd, I'd probably go to that to support, and also because I'm interested in that uh, in that topic. And her response to me was, oh, "Racism is everywhere. I'm not sure what an exhibition is going to do or make any difference. I don't understand what why why everyone's complaining about it. It's always going to be here." So what would you do in that moment, Tracy? And what would you say if I told you that the person who made the comment was a person of colour? Well, yeah, that does put a different spin on it, different context on it, for sure. And what would I do? I would just say, and you could say it's defensive, I don't know. I said, if we all fought like that, Black people would still be slaves. And I said, yeah, she's right. Might always have racism. And that's, that might be the reality, but it doesn't mean we can't do anything about it. Can't make life better. Can't make things fairer um, for people. Um, can't make, you know, a society where we live in harmony. Doesn't mean that's impossible. I know people think that's an ideology. It might be, but unless you're subjected to that, and I'll be asking her, she experienced racism herself and 
how did she handle it and how did it make her feel yeah and you know it might be that I don't know because that's what you get curious about that person's experience it might be that um, she has experienced it but she's put it out of her mind and it was a long time ago and she's somehow avoided that in her life or that she's or even worse which I think is you become so numb to it and you give up you just like and it's not a good place to be in you have to kind of just resign like you've given up I'm a victim now this is this is my life so I don't know if that's how she's feeling I'd be asking the questions about that. and that's exactly well what you said in the latter that's mm. exactly what I did in that scenario I was a little bit taken aback by this work colleague a colleague's response and what I did was or how I responded was saying that well, I'm going to be supporting our work colleague. She's put a lot of effort into this um, into this exhibition, and it's of a topic which is of interest to me uh, because I've experienced um, racism, and I'm interested to see what it looks like in this country and hear of other people's stories. And then I went on to ask her a little bit about what her experience was, but I actually ended up taking her for a coffee after work. Because for the sole reason, for what you've just said there, Tracy, I was pretty taken aback by what she'd said because she was a person of colour. And I wanted to know where is this coming from? Has she had experiences? And it turned out, without revealing too much, it turned out um, during our, our, our coffee was that she really opened up and she let me know that she'd had some, she had some times of hardship and she'd gone through some experiences where she was judged on her colour. And when she tried to stick up for herself, she didn't have any support. And this had happened again and again. And she resided her fact to herself to the fact that she didn't feel like it. She'd been feeling very undervalued. And so it was that time when I found out about why she came, to, why she responded to me in the way she did. And it's exactly what you were, um, you were saying, Tracy, is because it's come from a place where she just feels like um, she can do nothing about it. And mm. she, she's already slipped into that, not victim mentality, but she slipped into that, well, let's just let it go now. Let's just mm. let it be. So, yeah, and, uh, and I'm hoping that with the conversation with myself, I've made her start, I've kind of maybe kind of like started to make her think about things in a different perspective. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, it's like asking the questions because it's not a good place to feel so disempowered. I mean, that's my definition of a victim, disempowered like everything's out of your control and you, life is happening to you and there's nothing you can do about it and she didn't have the support and that's really awful but that's why it's so important to do something about it and so we can ensure that support is there and change does happen mm. so that's really that simple but you know it's not a good place to be when you think thinking and feeling that way yeah yeah and I think taking time out to actually find out yeah. where, where a person's perspective is coming from, mm. I think that's really important. So, and it yeah. makes a difference. It does make a difference. I mean, you've just given her, you've just held the space for her and allowed her to be heard. Mm. Um, so that's a really beautiful thing you did there, Bav. Mm. Thank you. So Tracy. well done. Yeah, it's a really beautiful thing you did there. Um, if it was a white person... <laughs> Would I still be taking her out for coffee? <laughs> it depends, like, it depends on their demeanour. Like, are they, like, are they genuinely, like, ignorant? 
or are they just trying to be divisive? You know, you get sometimes you get a sense of people just want to you're still looking for an argument and think they're going to get a. I don't know the feed off it or something. So it really depends where that person's coming from. I would like listen to my intuition. Is this a person that's open to discussion and you know we're friendly terms and you know not going to judge each other? I can easily do that. But I'm probably more likely to judge a person if I feel like it's just they want an argument. Do you know what I mean? And to be honest, I wouldn't really engage with them that much because I that would be the sense I would take away that they're not open. They're not. They're not there for an open discussion. They just want to get a rise out of me. Yeah. So it really just depends. <laughs> You're not going to be falling for. So yeah. Uh, it just depends on the feeling, and then it depends also. Because you can behave in different ways depending on how you're feeling in the moment. You know, if I've had enough sleep, you know, when you don't have enough sleep, you've got less tolerance and, you know, you're tired and you're grumpy and blah, blah, blah. So it really depends on where I'm at as well and how I respond at any time. Everything's context. context. But if I'm in my best, I'm in my best form, it would be a curious conversation. Yeah. And, you know, and sharing of experiences and, on what on why I think it's important but that, it wouldn't be like uh, a defensive thing it'd just be like a discussion anyway that's how I would see it so thanks Belle, for that great example of all what would you do yeah and thank you for another week of great of great discussion yeah thank you and until the next one until next time see you then take care bye, bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you have as much fun with us today as we did. If what you heard resonated with you, don't forget to show the love and like our YouTube channel, All One with Tracy G. Give us a five-star rating on whichever podcast platform is lucky enough to have this episode because they rock too. Feel free to email us stories or questions at alloneinclusive at gmail.com and sign up for my newsletter if updating yourself about everything which goes down sounds like something right up your alley at tracygandu.com. Until the next time, see ya!